Well, we're going to continue our study in Malachi. Turn to the book of Malachi. We're going to begin in the first chapter, verse 6. Is not he who formed the ear worth the time it takes to hear? Should he who formed our lips for speaking be not heeded when he speaks? Listen to the word of the Lord. A son honors his father, and a servant his master. If I am a father, where is the honor due me? If I am a master, where is the respect due me, says the Lord Almighty? It is you, O priests, who show contempt for my name. But you ask, how have we shown contempt for your name? You place defiled food on my altar. But you ask, how have we defiled you? By saying that the Lord's table is contemptible. When you bring blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice crippled or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering them to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you, says the Lord Almighty? Now implore God to be gracious to us with such offerings from your hands. Will he accept you, says the Lord Almighty? Oh, that one of you would shut the temple doors so that you would not light useless fires on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord Almighty, and I will accept no offering from your hands. My name will be great among the nations from the rising to the setting of the sun. In every place, incense and pure offerings will be brought to my name because my name will be great among the nations says the Lord Almighty. But you profane it by saying of the Lord's table, it is defiled, and of its food, it is contemptible. And you say, what a burden. And you sniff at it contemptuously, says the Lord Almighty. When you bring injured, crippled, or diseased animals and offer them as sacrifices, should I accept them from your hands, says the Lord? Cursed is the cheat who has an acceptable meal in his flock and vows to give it, but then sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. For I am a great king, says the Lord Almighty, and my name is to be feared among the nations. And now this admonition is for you, O priests. If you do not listen, if you do not set your heart to honor my name, says the Lord Almighty, I will send a curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. Yes, I have already cursed them, because you have not set your heart to honor me. Because of you, I will rebuke your descendants. I will spread on your faces the offal from your festival sacrifices, and you will be carried off with it. And you will know that I have sent you this admonition, so that my covenant with Levi may continue, says the Lord Almighty. My covenant was with him, a covenant of life and peace, and I gave them to him. This called for reverence, and he revered me and stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and nothing false was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, 
and turned away from sin. For the lips of a priest ought to preserve knowledge, and from his mouth men should seek instruction, because he is the messenger of the Lord Almighty. But you have turned from the way, and by your teaching have caused many to stumble. You have violated the covenant with Levi, says the Lord Almighty. So I have caused you to be despised and humiliated before all the people, because you have not followed my ways, but have shown partiality in matters of the law. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, if you will Let's pray together. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable to you through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. Diplomats in Washington, I've noticed, uh, have to take protocol very seriously. I mean, one misstep could result in some international incident. And so if one sends invitations to state dinner, for example, things must be done right, especially in the titles by which uh, one is addressed. So monarchy, I mean, it's got to be his or her majesty. Uh, ambassadors, it's his or her excellency. Uh, judges uh, must be addressed as the honorable or the right honorable. And for clergy, there is the obligatory, the reverend, for common pastors and priests, bishops are referred to as the right reverend, archbishops as the most reverend, and ecclesiastical deans as the very reverend. And it always seemed logical to me that if there's the title the very reverend, there should also be the title the slightly reverend or the somewhat reverend, but I've never seen it. The reverend. I can't say that I've ever liked that title. And as I began to feel a call to pastoral ministry, quite honestly, one of the things I struggled with was the prospect of being called the Reverend William Kynes. I never liked the term, both because it says too much and because it says too little. Uh, The word reverend comes from the Latin reverendus, which means worthy of being revered. And even a moderate amount of modesty recoils of that declaration. There's nothing reverential about me. I am a sinner saved by God's grace, just like everybody else. In fact, Susan has commented to me that if she ever spoke at my funeral, that's just what she would say about me. Though she's a little afraid that people might read too much into that statement. Why should she say that? Well, anyway, I've never liked the idea that a pastor should be set apart from other people as a kind of separate class, as if we're somehow holier than our other brothers and sisters in Christ. It's not true. And the ground is level at the foot of the cross, and that is exactly where we must all stand if we're to have a right standing with God. But if the truth be known, my humility has its limits. Another source of discomfort with the title comes from the other direction. You see, in the minds of many people, the title reverend says nothing at all about reverence, and that's not because they don't know any Latin. After the likes of the Reverend Jim Jones, the Reverend Ike, the Reverend Jim Baker, the Reverend Jimmy Swagger, not to mention the the child abuse scandals of the Catholic priest, for many, the title Reverend has lost its original meaning altogether. It's no longer a title of honor, 
but one that conjures up at the very least the image of an irrelevant, milquetoast proclaimer of trite truisms, if not something much worse. I mean, have you ever noticed how clergymen are portrayed on television? I mean, I have. I, mean, I came across an article in the National Foundation for Decency Journal once which uh, reviewed the content of some uh, TV programs with this theme in mind. It recounted one episode of CBS's Designing Women in which, quote, the clergyman character was a nervous, self-conscious wimp. Or there was the ABC movie Cracked Up in which the uh, Christian minister, played by Ed Asner, is soft-voiced and weak, insensitive and imperceptive as a father, humanistic and man-centered as a theologian. He defines Christian faith as believing in oneself. Or there's the CBS miniseries Murder Ordained, in which, quote, a Christian pastor has an affair with his secretary, murders his wife, and conspires to murder the secretary's husband. The pastor is betrayed as clearly mentally and emotionally unstable, cold, calculating, and self-centered. He also uses profanity. There you have it. Think about it. In this kind of context, would you want to be called reverend? It's no wonder that many uh, clergymen are clamoring to get a, a doctoral degree of some kind so they can get rid of reverend and be called doctor instead. Maybe then they'll get some respect. I mean, what's going on here? Is television to blame for this uh, innocuous, if not malicious, image of the ministers of the gospel? Is it a communist plot? Is the, has the Supreme Court failed us again? I don't think so. In large measure, I think the blame must go squarely on the shoulders of the, the clergy themselves. You see, TV's portrayal would not be funny or so common if there weren't at least a grain of truth about it. And I fear that the grain has grown into a boulder. Reverend, reverend. Why was this uh, epithet of respect <clears throat> ever bestowed upon uh, people in the first place? Well, it was never because their lives were faultless or without sin. No, in fact, strictly speaking, the title wasn't bestowed on people at all. It came with an office. These were those called of God, called to be messengers of the Lord God Almighty, and they were commissioned to proclaim the gospel and to set the minds of one and all on the holiness and majesty of their master. And so the reverence due these men was a borrowed, indirect reverence. The true reverence belongs to the God whom they were to represent. But what happens when they fail in this task? What happens when they fail to remain true to their master? What happens when the moral failures of their own lives undermine the, the credibility of their message? Well, the answer is simple. When the clergy are corrupt, there is no fear of God in the land. Where is the honor due to God in our land? Where is the respect that we owe him? Well, this is not just a, a modern question or a modern problem. It's not just confined to the secularism of our 21st century. It's found very clearly in the nation of Israel 2,500 years ago. Israel, God's chosen people, a people whom God had loved like a father. God had called them out from all the nations to be his own, a nation blessed by God to manifest his majesty and his holiness to the world. Israel had lost its reverence for God. Malachi chapter 1, verse 6. A son honors his father, and a servant his master. 
If I am a father, where is the honor due me? If I am a master, where is the respect due me, says the Lord Almighty? See, these are the questions raised by our text this morning as the Lord, through his prophet Malachi, chastises his people for their lack of reverence, their lack of respect, their lack of honor of him as their God. And the Lord focuses his holy gaze particularly on those who should be most concerned with that honor. The priests of the temple, those who are in the line of Levi, commissioned by God to, to proclaim and to protect his holiness among his people. And so this morning we want to look first at the Lord's description of a corrupt priesthood, a priesthood the Lord hates, before considering its antithesis, the priesthood the Lord desires. And we'll end with the priest that the Lord has provided. And as those who are now described in the New Testament as a royal priesthood, we too can take these lessons to heart. Malachi chapter 1, verse 6, It is you, O priests, who despise my name. But you ask, how have we despised your name? You place defiled food on my altar. But you ask, how have we defiled you? I mean, what have we done? Who, us? We don't understand. What have we done? How have we defiled you? How have we uh, dishonored you? I mean, were the priests being deceitful in their response? Well, possibly not. Perhaps they were just so dulled to the holiness of God that they were unconscious of the dereliction of their duty here. But that's no excuse. Such dullness is itself culpable. The priests uh, could not be considered innocent. Even the most basic knowledge of God's law and God's holiness would have made their sins abundantly clear. How have we defiled you, they asked. Well, the Lord responds in two ways. First, you have defiled me by your actions. Verse 8, when you bring blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice crippled or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Verse 13, when you bring injured, crippled, or diseased animals and offer them as sacrifices, should I accept them from your hands, says the Lord? I mean, these are nothing but second-rate offerings. But what did the law require? The law of God required that the animals brought in sacrifice were to be spotless, without blemish. And the Torah specifically forbade the presentation of a blind or crippled animal. Why was that? Because the quality of these animals was to remind the people of the holiness of God. Their physical purity was to speak of the moral purity that the Lord their God required of them. And these sacrifices were to prepare their minds for the ultimate sacrifice of the spotless Lamb of God, Jesus himself. And more than that, these sacrifices were to cost something. I mean, they were, they were to be a reflection of a, of a dedication of their own lives to the Lord. But what did they offer? The cast-offs, the worthless rejects of the flock. And verse 14 tips us off that this is not just a problem of the priests. Cursed is the cheat who has an acceptable male in his flock and vows to give it, but then sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. You see, all Israel was in collusion to this deceitful practice of shortchanging God. And just look at the animals you bring before me, he says in verse 8. Try offering them to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you, says the Lord Almighty? 
respect, honor, reverence. The mention of a governor here brought to mind a a picture I saw this week in the newspaper. It was a picture of the Dallas Mavericks basketball team at the White House. They were invited there to be uh, honored by the president for their uh, NBA championship last year. And the picture showed Mark Cuban, the owner of the team, wearing a suit. Now, I don't know if you know anything about Mark Cuban. He's a rather rebellious sort, sort of a rabble-riser in the NBA. He's young and brash and hugely wealthy. And the fact that he was wearing a suit was noteworthy because when he sold his first tech company and made his first $100 million or so when he was just 29 years old, he vowed that he would never wear a suit again unless it was absolutely necessary. Yet here he was in the White House with a suit on. And when asked about it, he said he did it out of respect for the President of the United States of America. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that you should wear a suit to worship God on Sundays. Uh, The point is really not about clothes at all. I mean, fashions change. They're culturally conditioned. Frankly, I don't think the Lord is too concerned about how you dress so long as it's modest and not provocatively drawing attention to yourself. I mean, I used to wear a suit every week. I don't do that anymore. And I think people getting all dressed up for Sunday morning worship can actually be off-putting to some people. It may actually drive them away. So it's probably good that some people are dressed more casually to make it clear that there is no dress code for worship. But I will say this, uh, clothes can be a means of expressing refra- uh, re- respect in certain contexts in our culture, and what we do with our bodies uh, not only uh, reflects our hearts, but sometimes affects our hearts as well. That's just who we are as embodied creatures. But my main point is this. When Mark Cuban went to the White House, he thought about the honor and respect that was due to the President of the United States? Do you think about the honor and respect that is due to the Lord your God? What does that mean to you? What does that mean? Do you relate to him merely casually, giving little thought to his majesty, his holiness? When you consider that the very first petition in the prayer that the Lord Jesus taught his disciples to pray was, Lord, God, our Father, hallowed be your name. May your name be holy. May you be revered in this earth. May you be honored. How have you honored God? Do you you honor him with your devotion? Do you find time, or should I say, do you make time? You never find time. You make time for the Lord your God in your busy life, time to hear his voice, time to reflect upon his love and his grace, to seek his power and his mercy. How have you offered him your service? Service for God. When we think of service for God, we usually think about some sort of ministry activity in the life of the church. And that's good. But we shouldn't limit service to God, a church activity. No, do you serve the Lord your God in your home? Serving your wife, your husband, your children, your parents. You, you can serve your life, the Lord your God, in your neighborhood or in your work. What sort of service are you offering to God to honor Him? Have you offered Him your money? 
your purse, your material wealth. That's what the sacrificial animals were in Malachi's day. They were the currency of life. And the question is, what kind of offerings are you giving to the Lord your God? Are you giving him your best, the first, the spotless, the unblemished, or just the leftovers, the cast-offs? Do you worship him simply when you feel like it? Do you serve him only when it's convenient? Do you give away only what you don't need? You know, sometimes we treat the Lord God sort of like the Salvation Army. Oh, here's a torn and tattered shirt. I'm sure the Lord will be very pleased to get this. Consider the offerings you're bringing to the Lord. Try offering them to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you, says the Lord Almighty? Would you be ashamed to give them to your boss? But he is your boss. More than that, he's your father. He's the king, the Lord Almighty. Do your lives respect, reflect a respect for the Lord God? You know, one of the things I thought about when becoming a pastor was that my life would be on display. And that you know that there's a certain accountability to being a pastor. You know that if you get into trouble, you do something foolish and stupid, people are going to know about it, and it's going to have consequences. Most of all, and worst of all, it reflects poorly on the Lord God. But you know, it's not just pastors that that's true of. It's every single believer, everyone who bears the name of Jesus Christ. His reputation in the world is hinged on your behavior, your life. Don't you want to honor him? Show him respect. May he be hallowed in our world. And so as we hear these words of the prophet Malachi to the priests of Israel, can we ask ourselves, are are our offerings to God sacrificial or are they sacrilegious? A son honors his father, and a servant his master. If I am a father, where is the honor due me? If I am a master, where is the respect due me, says the Lord Almighty? You have defiled me by your actions, says the Lord. With such offerings from your hands, will he accept you, the prophet asks. But there's another way that you defile me, the Lord says to the priests of Israel. You defile me by your attitude. Verse 12, but you profane my name by saying of the Lord's table, it is defiled. And of its food, it is contemptible. And you say, what a burden. And you sniff at it contemptuously, says the Lord Almighty. Now the priests of Israel, given the most exalted position in the land, conducting the holy worship of the holy God, yet in their minds it was nothing but a burden. I mean, where is the zeal of the psalmist, as we read already this morning? How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord Almighty. My soul yearns, even faints, for the courts of the Lord. Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. But oh no, for the priests, life in the temple was a drudgery. It was a bore. Perhaps they once had enthusiasm. As young idealists, priests, for example, maybe they went to work every day with an expectancy that today they may see the glory of the Lord. Today his power may show itself in their midst. But alas, every day was the same. The same sheep, the same goats, the same bulls, all blood and guts and nothing more. 
I mean, we get bored just reading about all the priestly regulations in the book of Leviticus. How much more have to, uh, to follow them every day? I mean, shouldn't the Lord be a little more understanding with these people? I'm afraid he's not. Chapter 2, verse 1, And now this admonition is for you, O priests, if you do not listen. If you do not set your heart to honor my name, says the Lord Almighty, I will send a curse upon you and I will curse your blessings. Yes, I have already cursed them because you have not set your heart to honor me. And here it's not just a, a, a criticism of their actions, it's their attitude in doing it. They had not set their heart to honor God and that makes all the difference. And so what about you? What's your attitude toward, toward your service, your worship of God? You know, one uh, survey of ex-church members showed that the main reason they quit going to church was that they found it boring. What a burden it is to worship God, they say. Now, I admit that some churches work pretty hard to make worship as lifeless, heartless, and meaningless as it can be. And I appreciate the difficulty of engaging your minds and your hearts in this serious business of worshiping God. But again, I ask you, what are you coming here for? What's it all about? What do you expect? Is it to be entertained? Is it to to see some performance? Now again, if it is, I'd encourage you to stay home. We just can't compete with what you can find on television. I mean, entertainment is what TV is for. But that's not what we're here for. And that's one of the reasons we discourage applause in our worship. It's too connected with entertainment in our culture. It sends the wrong message. We're here to set our minds and to set our hearts on the majesty and glory and holiness of God. We're here to focus on His Word to us. To grasp more, more fully His magnificent grace and to learn how better to love Him and to serve Him in the company of His people. That's what we're here for. And so I urge you, before you come to this place, set your hearts to honor Him. That's what the Lord says. And again, don't wait for your emotions to move you. Use your will. Set your hearts, God says. Set your hearts to honor Him. And again, if that's not why you're here, then we all just better go home. I mean, verse 10, Oh, that that one of you would, would shut the temple doors so that you would not light useless fires on my altar. A closed temple is preferable to worthless worship. As someone had said, it's better to be speechless than to blaspheme. Close down the church. You're just going to go through the motions, he says. Worship can never simply be a a leisure time activity, a hobby, a game. No, the Lord won't put up with it. Don't waste your time lighting worthless fires on his altar, he says. As one writer has put it, better to bribe a judge than to ply God with hollow words. Better to slap a policeman than to seek God's influence by meaningless gestures. Better to perjure yourself in court than to harry God with promises you cannot keep. The full adoration of our spirit, the true obedience of our heart, these are his demands and these are his delights. God deserves our best. 
which is what the priests in Malachi's day had refused to give him, and they stood in danger of the judgment of God. Chapter 2, verse 3, Because of you I will rebuke your descendants. I will spread on your faces the offal from your festival sacrifices, and you will be carried off with it. The offal, that's the, the refuge of the animal sacrifice, the internal organs, the decaying carcass. It is inedible, it's, it's repulsive. And these holy men would be rendered unclean and would be thrown out on the garbage heap with more than egg on their faces because they had refused to give God the honor and respect that is his due by their actions, by their attitude. They had forfeited the privilege of joining in the worship of their great and glorious God. It was a corrupt priesthood. And as a result, there was no fear of God in the land. But the Lord has his eye on a better way. Look at verse 4 of chapter 2. And you will know that I have sent you this admonition so that my covenant with Levi may continue, says the Lord Almighty. My covenant was with him, a covenant of life and peace. You see, in contrast to the corrupt priesthood, the priesthood God despises, stood the priesthood of the covenant, this, this covenant with Levi, the priesthood that God desires. And in chapters 2, verses 5 to 7, we see three characteristics of this priesthood that pleases God. First, it was to be a priesthood characterized by reverence for God. In verse 5, we read that the Lord's covenant with Levi called for reverence, and he revered me, and he stood in awe of my name. And what a contrast to what the Lord saw in Israel. Reverence. Reverence. That's literally in the Bible, that's, that's fear. The fear of God, it is an overwhelming sense of the awesome greatness of God in all his moral purity and power. It was the feeling that Isaiah had when he saw the Lord high and exalted in the temple and he fell down as though dead and said, Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. I am undone. And this was the experience of Ezekiel when he saw that fantastical vision and the, of the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord and this heavenly chariot with wheels upon wheels and lightning and glorious shimmering stones and a divine figure and a throne. And, and we read that when he saw it, he fell face down. And that's what everyone in the Bible does when they see a vision of God. They fall face down. They're overwhelmed by the holiness of God. They're filled with a a fearful awe before such glory. Reverence for God. See, that's the effect that a true understanding of God ought to have upon us and the, the priesthood God desires ought to reflect that. And second, it was to be a priesthood characterized by right teaching. Chapter 2, verse 6, true instruction was in his mouth, and nothing false was found in his lips. For the lips of a priest ought to preserve knowledge, and from his mouth men should seek instruction, because he is the messenger of the Lord Almighty. And again, what a contrast with the priests of Malachi's day. Uh, Verse 8, but you have turned away from the way, and, and by your teaching have caused many to stumble. You have violated the covenant with Levi, says the Lord Almighty. So I have caused you to be despised and humiliated before all the people, because you have not followed my ways. 
but have shown partiality in matters of the law. And what a tragedy is when those who are supposed to speak for God speak falsehood and how much falsehood abounds in our churches today. But the priesthood the Lord desires speaks truth, God's truth. And finally, this priesthood was to be characterized by righteous living. Speaking of Levi the priest, the Lord says, He walked with me in peace and uprightness and turned many from sin. Reverence for God, right teaching, righteous living. This is the ministry that pleases God. And let me ask you, what kind of ministry are you looking for? What do you look for in a pastor? You look for a man who reveres God, who stands in awe of his name. Do you really want a ministry that is God-centered? Concerned with God's glory? Do you want a ministry that seeks to set your hearts to honor God? Do you want true instruction? You want to preserve knowledge. Notice there's nothing here about eloquence or humor or entertainment value. No, proper instruction in the word of life. Do you want someone impartial in presenting God's truth? Someone who shares the whole counsel of God, not just favorite passages and themes. Are you looking for a pastor who walks with God in peace and uprightness and who turns people away from sin? Is that what you're looking for? I wonder how many churches are. It's far easier to look for someone who will make you feel good about yourself. A ministry that will tell you what you want to hear. A ministry that will take your blind and diseased and crippled offerings and willing them offer on the altar of God without a word of protest. During the days of the Emperor Napoleon, a notable Frenchman commented, every nation has the government it deserves. And I'm sure that's true of churches too. It gets the leadership it deserves. And that's why the church itself is the foundation of the truth. The church. The congregation. A corrupt priesthood. Or a priesthood of covenant. The choice may be yours, you see. But you know, we live in the New Testament era, don't we? So we don't have priests anymore. No. Perhaps I should put it another way. We are all priests. We are all priests. Peter puts it that way in the passage that we read earlier, speaking to his Christian brothers and sisters. He says, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood. A holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. We are all called, you see, to play the role of Levi. We're all to be priests, living in reverence for God with right teaching and righteous living, declaring the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. That's what the gospel calls us to, all of us. And so we read this passage, a son honors his father and a servant his master. If I am a father, where is the honor due me? If I am a master, where is the respect due me, says the Lord Almighty? Where is the honor? Where is the respect? Where is the reverence due to God? Now this is the question that's set before each of us. 
And by asking that question and by giving us this admonition this morning, I want you to see that God himself is showing us his grace. Why do I say that? For you see, our great God doesn't need our worship. He doesn't need it. Not at all. Look at verse 11. My name will be great among the nations from the rising to the setting of the sun. In every place, incense and pure offerings will be brought to my name because my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord Almighty. Verse 14. For I am a great king, says the Lord Almighty, and my name is to be feared among the nations. You see, this is a declaration. This is a promise. You can be sure of it. God will receive the reverence and the honor he deserves. But the question is, will it come from you? Will it come from you? You see, this morning he is offering you the great privilege of worshiping him. The great privilege. It's what we're created for. To glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. And that's what He wants from us. Worship, you see, is the highest, most noble activity that we can ever perform. And the Lord God is calling us to be His worshipers. In a worship that extends to every part of our lives. As Paul says in Romans 12, he says, Therefore, in view of God's mercy, I urge you, brothers and sisters, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice to God, which is pleasing to Him. A sacrifice that is the reasonable service of worship, He says. But I think as we think of this, we all have to confess that we have not offered Him what He deserves. We have not loved Him. We have not worshipped Him with all our heart, mind, strength, and soul. Our offerings are blemished. Injured, crippled, diseased. And when you think about it, there is nothing we can offer Him that is not tarnished by our own sin. None of our thoughts are pure. All of the intentions of our hearts are infected by our own selfish interests. And in that sense, we can't be priests. Because we all need a priest. Someone to make a pure offering on our behalf. Someone to intercede for us. Someone to make a way for us to enter God's holy presence. And that, you see, is where this passage ultimately leads us. Because God has given us just such a priest. And it is not me. It is the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus didn't need to offer a sacrifice for his own sin. He was pure and spotless without sin. But he has offered himself for us once and for all to take away our sin. And now he's been exalted to the right hand of the Father where he now intercedes for his people. And he intercedes for us forever. That's the priest that the Lord has provided for us. And so we read in Hebrews 13, 15, Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that praise His name. And do not forget to do good and to share with others, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. 
Peter says the same thing again in that passage from 1 Peter 2. We are to be a a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You see that phrase? Through Jesus. Through Jesus Christ. That's the key phrase. And so we pray, Lord, help us to offer our best even as we confess how inadequate all that we have to offer you is. But may it be offered through Jesus Christ. And as we offer it through Jesus Christ, may it be acceptable in your sight. Let's pray.